Thank you very much for having me. I'm very, very honored to be here. I'm going to start my timer so that we don't run over. Uh, I'm very, very honored uh, to be here today. Um, it's, it's just uh, a, a, an incredible journey between the very beginnings of my recovery and the very depths of my disease to get here today to be with you guys. Uh, I actually love Wisconsin. I actually love Milwaukee. Um, I have a lot of wonderful memories of Milwaukee. I actually did a couple of big book studies. Uh, I did one in Oconomowoc at a, a beautiful retreat center there in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. And I did a, a couple of retreats, a couple of things right in Milwaukee too. But the retreat center in Oconomowoc was particularly memorable and very, very beautiful. And what a great group of people that we had. And I can see uh, in my mind's eye, I can see some of those rooms and, and the landscape of the place in Oconomowoc. Just gorgeous, just gorgeous. Anyway, a funny thing happened to me on the way to dying. Uh, God rescued me and here I am. But my journey starts out very, very, at a very, very young age, very young age. I have been a compulsive overeater since birth. My earliest, earliest memories of life, my earliest memories of life are of being in screaming fits for more food, more food, more food, more food. I also have some very vivid memories before I was maybe five years old, maybe when I was three, four years old, of people yelling and screaming at my mother and father about how fat I was getting as a child and why are you letting him eat this and why are you letting him eat that and why aren't you making sure that he does more exercise and why don't you instill some willpower in him and let him cry it out and you know don't feed him so much don't let him eat so much and I have memories of my mother and father being shamed by other adults about how much I was eating and my father was a member of something called a cousin's club. None of them were related at all. But my father was the sole survivor of a family of 40 that came out, he came out of Russia in 1914 when the massacres of, of, of Jewish people were very common, the pogroms, the massacres were very common. And he made it to the United States of America. He made it to Chicago as a 14-year-old kid. And he, at age 14, spoke no English. He, he had to start a whole new life. My mother was mentally ill. My mother had three distinct personalities. She could be a screaming, raving lunatic and just breathe in air. And, and you never knew how long these personalities were going to last. They could last five minutes. They could last three hours. She would just breathe in air and become a two-year-old. And then she could breathe in more air and become a very together, very kind of normal person, sort of, you know, sort of together human being, sort of up on current events, knows what's going on and so on. And is that why I'm a compulsive overeater? Absolutely not. I'm a compulsive overeater because I'm a compulsive overeater and for no other reason. It is nature and not nurture. And many of us come in, and I've heard this, you know, I've been around for 42 years. We come in with our resume. Well, I'm a compulsive overeater because my mother used ice cream for love, and my dad, he, they were divorced, and these, my mother and father were never divorced. I'm just sharing what I hear all the time. 
when my dad and mom got divorced, my dad used to take me for ice cream. And instead of giving me a hug, he would give me a ice cream bar. He'd give me a, a, a whatever, a, a candy bar, whatever it was. No, that's not why people become compulsive overeaters. We become compulsive overeaters because of an overpowering desire to eat food because the food does something for us called the effect. And that effect is what Dr. Silkworth calls the what, what Dr. Silkworth calls the effect. And what that is, is it's a, a sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating the food. And that food, certain foods, certain ingredients changed my perception of reality. And food doesn't do that for everybody. I didn't know that. I didn't understand that then. I didn't really get it. I thought that other people just had more willpower than me. I thought that other people were just stronger, better, and smarter than me. It never occurred to me that they were different biologically than me because all that I was told as a child is if I had some discipline, if I had some willpower, if I had some, some perseverance, I could lick this thing on my own by myself. And of course, that's not true. So I remember, though, when I got to be six and seven years old, they started screaming directly at me. Any adult in my environment, pretty much my weight and my food consumption were topic number one. But let me get back to the Cousins Club because that's a little vignette that happened before kindergarten. My father in, in Chicago, and I assume in other places too, a lot of these people that had come out of these, out of these horrific situations had no family left. And so they formed Cousins Clubs. And there was a pan of chocolate chip cookies in Gompers Park, Chicago. If, you, if you're from Chicago, big park, Gompers Park. And it was a Sunday, just like today. And I snuck around and I opened up some tin foil, and inside were chocolate chip cookies that should have fed 20, 30 people. I don't know how many people, but the, you know, when I'm a little kid, the, the thing seemed like endless. It seemed like a bathtub full of chocolate chip cookies. And by the time they opened up those cookies, there were very few, if any, left. I had downed just about every one of those cookies before they could get to them. And it was very embarrassing because my mother and father had to live with the fact that I was the one that was eating the cookies that were meant for everybody. And it was an extremely embarrassing thing. See, with eating, you get the idea right away that this is something to be ashamed of. Little kids, little kids will take food into a closet and eat it with the door closed. Somewhere inside of us is this idea that what we're doing is just not okay. And that really kind of scars us too, is this idea. But anyway, um, I could not beat this game. And people would say things to me when I was a little kid. They'd say, fat boys don't get girlfriends. And boy, I found that to be true. Wow, I went on my first date with a girl. I was 35 years old because there was no girl that I knew of that was going to go out with me. I was the fattest kid in the school. There was no way they were going to go out with me. 
And uh, they said, fat boys don't get good jobs. I found that to be true. They said, fat boys don't have a good life. I found that to be true. And they said, don't eat so much, you'll feel better. And I found that to be true too, because when I didn't eat so much, I felt anger better. I felt fear better. I felt like killing myself better. I felt like killing you better. I felt crushes on girls better. I felt all these things much, much better. And as these feelings would burst to the surface during periods of dieting, I would go nuts. And the only thing that would help me is food. I ate railroad cars full of Kit Kat bars, railroad cars full of potato chips to kill the pain and shame of eating railroad cars full of Kit Kat bars and railroad cars full of potato chips. I ate to kill the pain of eating. I ate to kill the pain of being fat. I ate to kill the pain of being a spectacle because of how much I weighed. I ate to kill the guilt and the shame of eating. And I was not aware of any of this at the time. It wasn't like I was seven years old saying, I'm gonna eat potato chips because I'm ashamed of the way I look. No, I ate potato chips without really knowing why I was eating them. But what I found out later on in my life was that food was never the problem in the first place. Food was the solution to my problem. And I didn't find that out until after I came into this program. But food was the solution to the problem. And if food is the solution to the problem, then what is the problem? The problem is the buildup of everyday normal human emotion. Now, all human beings have fear. All human beings have happiness, guilt, shame, remorse, regret jealousy. All human beings have these emotions. But in my brain, these emotions were insatiable. And the only thing that I could do to get rid of these was to eat the food because the food gave me that temporary respite, that nine, 10 second respite called the effect. And Dr. Silkworth says in the doctor's opinion, most alcoholics drink because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The effect is so elusive that they will pursue this to the gates of insanity or death. And that was exactly what I did. When I was five and six years old, I did everything I could do to diet down. I used every bit of willpower that I had to try to fend off this tremendous desire to eat whatever. And I failed most of the time. And most of the people in my environment were unrelenting in their hostility toward me as a child. The reason that I'm talking about this is I understand that the subject of this is the joy of recovery. And I'm going to get to that. But in order to go to the joy of recovery, I need to tell you what it was like, what happened and what I'm like now so I can illustrate it better for you. When I was nine years old, I was put on heavy duty amphetamines. My mother took me to the doctor on Devon Avenue in Chicago. And he, she started screaming at the doctor in Yiddish and he started screaming at her in Yiddish. And the next thing I knew I was on these pills, pink pills, great big 
pink amphetamines. And I don't know why this survived. I don't know how it survived. I'm 66 years old now, but about 15, 10, now about 20 years ago when we moved, we were a we then, now I'm divorced. I've been divorced. It'll be uh, 11 years in, in August that I'm divorced, which is, which is another subject of, of great pain. But anyway, I found one of the bottles, the medicine bottles, 250 milligrams of amphetamine three times a day. That's a lot of amphetamine for a nine-year-old kid to take. I was nine years old and man, I was wired on these pills. And my head would just go ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. And I get accused of this now, but I'd say the same thing like four, three, 400 times. And I couldn't hear anything. My brain was like on another channel. It just sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wonk, 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 wonk. That's what it sounded like to me. I couldn't hear anything. All I could think about was I don't want to eat, but I'm going crazy. And man, when those pills would wear off, holy mackerel. The only way I can describe it, if you've never been on amphetamines, you might not get this, but the end part of that pill, you're like coming down a roller coaster. And when that pill would wear off, I would eat Illinois and most of Wisconsin. I'd even start chewing on a little bit of Northwest Indiana too. But the bottom line is, is that I've got my fakakta allergies acting up. Hold on. <laughs> Sorry. Everything in the desert here is in bloom right now. And it has been for a while. And man, that wreaks havoc on me. Whew. Everything is just blooming. And it's going to be 90 degrees today or almost 90 degrees today, which means everything is just coming up. And it's just, oh my God. Anyway, that aside, when I was 10 years old, 1964, some of the information uh, about these amphetamines started coming back out of Hollywood, that maybe this isn't the panacea that they thought it was. I lost weight as a nine-year-old on the pills, no doubt about it, but some of the danger, then Marilyn Monroe died from it. And now some of this information was coming to light that maybe this isn't quite the panacea that they had originally presented it as because they thought, you know, these, these companies thought we've unlocked the secret of obesity. You take these pills, you know, it's the magic am it's the magic uh, potion. Here it is. Take the pills and lose weight. Who's not looking for that, right? Who's not looking for, if I had the pill that would cure your eating disorder, I'd throw it in the toilet because I wouldn't want to deny you the journey. What a magical, magical journey it is. And I wouldn't want to deny you of one step of it in this amazing fellowship. But we'll get to that soon. So when I was 10, they switched the pills. I lost weight again, but you know, it was, I was half nuts. And the bottom line is, is that then I started going to things like tops. That's a Milwaukee outfit tops take off pounds sensibly. I don't even know that they're around anymore. I don't hear about them. I don't see them advertised. And I think uh, Gene Neidich or what's the weight, the WW one. I think that came out in Milwaukee too, but I know for sure tops was a Milwaukee outfit. I joined that. I became a King, a tops King. I became a weight watchers King because I weighed so much that losing a lot of weight for me was not only possible, 
but it was easy because any very when you're that young, your furnace is very efficient. So any very, you know, if I if I skipped a milk dud, I could lose weight. You know, <laughs> whatever it was, you know, all I got to do is skip a couple of the Oreo cookies in the bag there, and I'm going to lose weight. No, not really. But the bottom line is, is that I started getting that. And then I started getting into puberty, which was very, very painful for me because I couldn't go on the dates that my friends could go on. Girls didn't pay attention to me like they paid attention to them. All those girls wanted to know from me was, does your friend like me? Does your friend like, like me? Could, is he going out with so-and-so? That's the only reason they even ever spoke to me is to find out about my friends. And that wasn't to alleviate for a long, long time. And in the area of relationships, let me just say this, I still pay the price for the Kentucky Fried Chicken that I ate in 1966. Trust me when I tell you that, it's still a struggle in the physical end of that. Although I've been single for a long time now and I wish I wasn't, but it's still, it still rears its ugly head. Trust me on that one. And I never had a chance to go to the dance. I never had a chance to go on the date. I never had a chance to hold a girl's hand or anything like that. And I had to pretend that it didn't bother me. I had to pretend that it was okay. I had to wear clothes that had gone out of style before World War II. You know, there, I couldn't wear the jeans and the bell bottoms and I couldn't wear the clothes from the 60s. And in the 1960s, if you, if you were alive then, or I don't know if you were or you weren't, but if you were alive then, everything was very skin tight. All the garments from the 60s, the, the girls' garments, the boys' garments, everything was skin tight. And the hair, the girls would wear their hair very, very straight. If you've ever seen like the Mod Squad on TV, Peggy Lipton, her hair was like ironed straight. And all the Jewish girls used to have to iron their hair because they all had the curly hair, you know, the frizzy curly hair, and they would iron their hair after school. And some of the girls, the cool ones, went to this girl's house to iron their hair, and the not so cool girls, they went to another girl's house, but they were ironing their hair. Well, I couldn't wear skin tight clothes, for crying out loud, I couldn't wear skin tight skin, let alone skin tight clothes, come on. So by the time I was in high school, by the time I was a senior in high school, I was 335 pounds. By the time I was a sophomore in college, I was 500 pounds. By the time I was a graduate of college, I was about 600 pounds. And so I was to get up past 700 pounds. My life had gotten away from me. I was an object of ridicule. Wherever I went, people, children especially, would point at me and laugh at me. People that I didn't even know would come up to me and slap my stomach and ask me when the baby hippo was due. Frequently, I would eat in restaurants by myself and they would come up to my table and ask me if I knew how fat I was or how much do you weigh or why are you eating that? Don't you know that that's fattening? Don't you know that's not on your diet? And I didn't even know these people, but for some reason I had to pretend that it didn't bother me, that I thanked them and I just got heaps and heaps of abuse. And I learned at a very early age to just shut down emotionally 
I had to shut down emotionally because in my lifetime, it was pointed out to me that I deserve this abuse because I was fat. And if I just had some discipline, I didn't, I, it was okay for people to abuse me. It was okay for people to slap my stomach. It was okay for people to slap my ass. It was okay for me, people to ask me in public, how much do you weigh? What do you eat for breakfast? On some occasions, independently of one another, I would be eating in a restaurant and people that I didn't even know would come up and take food off my table and give it to the busboy and say, he doesn't need this, he's way too fat as it is. And I had to pretend that it didn't bother me, but it did. I'm just as human as a thin boy. I'm just as human as you. And it bothered me then. And if I didn't have these steps, it would kill me today. So I, I, in every sense of the word, this disease not only became my murderer, my potential murderer, but it became my executioner. And at the hands of this disease, I have been dragged through pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And it breaks my heart today that I will never have the prom to go to. I will never have the dance to go to. I will never go on a date as a teenager. I will never hold a girl's hand. I was physically and emotionally emasculated by this disease. And in every sense of the word, this disease took me to the woodshed and beat me unmercifully. And this disease not only beat me unmercifully, but it afflicted and affected my parents before they died. Each one went to God with this on their lips, please find a way not to eat so much. And this was my life. And I wrote bad checks to anyone that would take them. I robbed Peter to rob Paul. I lied when the truth would have been better. I lived in filth. I lived in squalor. I was evicted from my childhood rented apartment for non-payment of rent and keeping it like a dirt house. I would order pizzas two and three at a time. Very frequently in the 1970s, my food habit, not my heroin habit, not my cocaine habit, not my hooker habit, was $100 to $150 a day every day. And my income was nowhere near that amount. I found it difficult to make money. I found it difficult to keep money because that food machine had to be fed every day. I was absolutely suicidal. I begged God every day that I wanted to die. I begged him for death. I did not want to live in this world. I saw no point. If all I'm going to be is a freak, if all I'm going to be is an object of ridicule, if all I'm going to be is something that is not alive in any real sense of the word, then what is the point of life? Please, God, take me out. And when I would wake up in the morning, I would be very, very upset at God. And I would wake up with a thought of what I was going to eat or what I was not going to eat. And I spent my life in one of two modes, either actively not eating or actively eating. But the actively not eating stages <clears throat> couldn't last very long because I could not sustain it. And the more I didn't eat, 
the more days that would go by, it would just explode. It would explode into a binge because I couldn't bear the emotional buildup. I couldn't bear feeling my feelings like that. And I also inherently knew as a 500 pounder, as a 600 pounder, as a 700 pounder, it will be years and years and years before I could be in a normal looking body. And I became very despondent because I couldn't wait years and years and years, but somehow God saw me through that. But that's a later time. My life was hell. There was no interesting, no good part of it. When I was a little kid, most, not all, but most of the adults that I knew came out of the concentration camps of Poland, Germany, Czechoslovakia, all over Europe, they came out of the concentration camps. And they had the tattoos on their arms. They had the tattoos. And they would say to me, they would grab my face and say, live until you die live until you die. And I interpreted that to mean that when you live and you go and you live, that means you eat milk duds and pizza and candy and cookies, because that's the only real living I had ever known. That's the only real living I had ever known. I was physically emasculated. I was emotionally emasculated. I was alone. I had some friends, but when my mom died and my dad died, it was hell because I don't have brothers and sisters. I don't have aunts or uncles. I didn't have, don't have cousins, don't have any of that stuff. But I did have some wonderful friends and I owed a lot of money. I just saw no point to living. I saw no point to it. There was nothing on the horizon but more pain and more torture. And doctors have been pronouncing me dead from the time I was a kid. When I was a junior in high school, I was in gym class and I broke my ankle. And my mother took me to the hospital, Edgewater Hospital. It's not there anymore. And Dr. Bernstein, I can see him now. He had his little glasses. I have cheater glasses. I've had uh, surgery. I've had cataract removal surgery, so I don't need to wear glasses anymore. But these are my cheaters. I use them as a prop for this part. He, he always wore his glasses down like this. And, he's, and, and he was casting my ankle. That was in the days when doctors put the cast on. Now, forget it's the nurse or the PA or doctors don't bother with putting a cast on today. Anyway, he looks over his glasses and he starts yelling, Virginia, my mother's name was Virginia. You don't hear that name anymore, Virginia. You don't see, you don't hear people name that anymore. But anyway, he says, Virginia, he's not going to live past 30. And he looked over his glasses like this. And he says, he's 300 pounds at 17 years of age. And my mother started crying. So what did we do on the way home from the hospital? We went for ice cream. My mother was a compulsive overeater too. So she and I went for ice cream, both vowing to be healthier and happier tomorrow. But for tonight, we're going to eat ice We're going to eat ice cream. So we both binged our brains out. I think we might have had all 33 flavors in that one sitting. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, this is this is this was my life. And 
I had a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and a lot of fear. I was afraid of anything and everybody because I was an object of ridicule. I was absolutely scared to death to live in this world. And I was scared to die and scared of living. Otherwise I would have taken a knife and ended it all. Or a, I, don't, I don't have access to a gun, but maybe I should have got one and you know, whatever. But the bottom line is, is that I had no life. Sunday, like then, and even now, was a very lonely day. People are with their families on Sundays. People are with their wives, their girlfriends, their families. I didn't have that. I still don't. But now I don't because I'm divorced, as unfortunate as that is. But Sunday was a very lonely day. So I went and I gorged myself on food. Well, my father was a survivor of murder and mayhem in Europe. He came here in 1914 as a 14-year-old boy. He spoke no English at all whatsoever. And on November the 11th, 1978, he passed away. And we were coming off the, off the cemetery, in, going back to the cars. And a very dear friend of mine said to me, she's still my dear friend. She lives a couple of blocks from me here in Arizona. She turned and said, now the kids all called my father, Mr. G, Mr. G. And he loved them and they loved him. They, she said, Mr. G is finally safe now. They can't hurt him. Because my father feared all of his life that he'd be murdered, that he'd be killed uh, for being Jewish. And he, he believed that eventually they're going to kill us out. He says, maybe they didn't kill us out then. They didn't kill us out in Germany. But eventually they're going to come and kill us out. And I remember when, when uh, Ruby killed Oswald in Dallas, he was absolutely sure this is it. They're going to kill us now because Ruby was a Jewish guy from Chicago. <sighs> if you're too young to remember what I'm talking about, you can Google it if you're too young. All right. Well, he feared this. And when he finally, when he died of natural causes, it was a relief to me that he had outlived his murderers and that for the first time in his life, he was safe. There was nothing they could do to him now, nothing. And you can believe whatever you want to believe, or you can be an agnostic, which is without knowledge, or you can be an atheist. That's okay in this program. That's fine. But I believe in, in a higher power. And I believe that my father had great sway because I know he's in heaven because he lived hell on earth, hell on earth. On November the 13th, he was buried 78. February 2nd of 79, a mere four, eight, 12 weeks later, whatever it is, two friends, one lives a block from me, two blocks from me here in Arizona, and the other one I think is gone. They came into my home and pushed their way past the pizza boxes and the chicken pot pie tins. And they pushed their way past the uh, Girl Scout cookie boxes because February is Girl Scout time. February, got to get the Thin Mints, got to get the Girl Scout cookies. Pushed their way past the Girl Scout cookie boxes, pushed their way past the filth and the mouse droppings and everything else. And they dragged me kicking and screaming to a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. 
It was at the Orchard Mental Health Center in Skokie, Illinois. And I went to that meeting and I was 30 years younger than anybody in that room and 300 pounds fatter than anybody in that room. And in the parking lot of that meeting was Lincoln Continentals and Cadillacs and Electra, Buick, and very fancy cars. And I thought to myself, what the hell are these people doing here? I mean, I understand I'm here, but what the hell are these people doing here? I couldn't put it together to save my life. And for a long time, these guys made me go to the meetings because I owed them a lot of money. And I would eat my way to the meetings. I would pray for a Russian airstrike during the meetings and I would eat my way home. I did not want to be there. And I resented all of you for being there because if you weren't there, then I could just go home and eat. But you kept coming back and coming back and coming back and coming back. And there are two people that I have contact with today who were at my very first meeting 42 years ago. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And eventually I came in and I went out and I came in and I went out and I gained a lot of weight and I was 700 pounds by the late eighties and I mid middle eighties. And I came back and I saw some things in the book that I had never seen before. I saw things like on page 58 of the big book, it says, if you want what we have and you're willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. If you want what we have, what is it that we have? Now, my first reaction was we have people that are not compulsively overeating and that's just a bare beginning. That's just a bare beginning that we have people that are not compulsively overeating. We have a group of people here. There's 72 of us on the on the podcast right or on the convention podcast now. And of the 72 of us, dare I say that there are a group of us that are not compulsively overeating and we are doing so happily because of the spiritual awakening as the result of the steps in a book called Alcoholics Anonymous and a program called Overeaters Anonymous because we work the steps on a continuum basis the desire to overeat has been lifted. If you want that and you're willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. And I also saw something, I saw the thesis line of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the thesis line of the big book is on page 45. It says very simply, the main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problem. And if it's the main object of the book, then it better be the main object of my life. Because going to this meeting and that meeting and this meeting and that meeting is a very, very bare beginning. I am not here just to go home and not eat like a crazy man. I am not here to be stark, raving, abstinent. I am not here to just adhere to a food plan. I am here 
to work the steps and develop a relationship with a power greater than myself. Came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Notice it doesn't say believed that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sobriety. Doesn't say believed that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to abstinence. It's more open-ended, it's more all-encompassing came to believe means it's going to be a process. It's not going to be an event. And I have to work at that every day, every single day through the working of these steps, 10, 11, and 12, every single day in everything that I do, I'm either getting closer to God or I'm getting closer to Oreo cookies. And there is no middle ground. The main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Means I have to work at this. It means that abstinence alone is not the most important thing in my life without exception. It is not the most important thing in my life because mere abstinence alone will not relieve the disease. The disease is permanent, the disease is progressive, the disease is fatal. And just being abstinence will not alleviate anything. Abstinence is not the most important thing in my life. Now don't go out of here thinking, hey, the fat guy in Arizona said we don't have to be abstinent. I never said that. I said it's a prerequisite but it is not the be all and the end all. What is the be all and the end all? It's to enlarge and perfect my spiritual life because when he uses the word sanity, I am being repaired in areas of my life that I didn't even know were broken. I feel alive today for the only time in my life. There are people that don't like me, that's okay. I don't lose sleep over it. If I've harmed them, yes, I'll make amends. I just got dumped, you know, a few months ago by a woman that's a lovely person. She doesn't want to be romantically involved with me anymore. I'm living my life. I'm doing the best that I can. I got divorced 11 years ago. Just because I'm in recovery doesn't mean there's nothing in this book that says now everything goes your way. Now you get what you want. Now everybody does your bidding. There's nothing in this book that says that. What I'm faced with is the fact that no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. I have a daughter lives in New York, Brooklyn, New York. She's married. She, just, she doesn't want to have a relationship with me. She, she says she doesn't want me in her life. I have to accept that. It hurts. It's painful, but I can go on because of the steps, not because of the meetings, not because of the fellowship. Those are wonderful things. Those are great things. I'm not demeaning them, but I have to work the steps every day. On the bottom of page 14 in Bill's story, it says, my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. In all my affairs, particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, 
and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed with us. It is just like that. What does that mean? It means I have to work very hard. Look, this is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. This is an action program. It doesn't matter what you're thinking. It matters what you're doing. You don't want to do it, do it anyway. You're not willing, do it anyway. The willingness will come. Willingness does not precede action for me. I take the action and the willingness comes. I must perfect and enlarge my spiritual life through service and self-sacrifice for others, not just once in a while, but every day. It says on page 77 of the big book, Pure Oxford Group, page 77, it says, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. That means I have to be in recovery. That means I have to be abstinent, but I have to do more than being abstinent. On page XX of the forward to the second edition, page XX, the forward to the second edition, it says of 100 people who came into AA, 50% of them got sober at once. Of the remaining 50, 25 came back and got sober. And of the remaining 25, they showed improvement. That means 75% recovery. We can't talk about 75% recovery in Overeaters Anonymous today. We can't talk about 25% recovery in Overeaters Anonymous today. We're lucky if we're recovering at one and a half to 2%. Lucky. What's the difference? Because we keep getting away from the big book. We keep getting away from the basic text. We treat it as a diet with group support and we lean into the tools rather than the steps. And that's what I've seen in 42 years. I have 22 years of abstinence, 42 years in the rooms. And this is what I've seen. The, the, the tools are important, especially at first, but we can't get distracted by the tools. 90 and 90 is great. What do you do on day 107? What do you do on, pay, on day 382? You've got to work the steps and work them quickly if you're anything like me, because the disease is permanent. The disease is progressive and the disease is fatal. This is the most wonderful, the most glorious way of life imaginable. If you're on the struggle bus, if you are struggling, I beg of you, take our hands. There are people here on this Zoom meeting that are wonderful sponsors. They're caring, wonderful, beautiful people. Let us help you. We need that for our own recovery and we would like nothing more than to help you. Dr. Bob, at the end of his life, he bequeathed us with something magic. He said, Let's keep this simple. 
Let's not louse it up with complexities that are only of importance to the psychologist, the therapist. He said at the very last, this boils down to love and service. And we all know what love is and we all know what service is. And that no man looks as wonderful as when he's bent over to help somebody occupy the rung of the ladder on which he now stands. There are so many magical moments in the life of a recovered person. The real camaraderie of people who speak and understand the language of the heart. And in helping others, the magic will be yours for the asking. There are many, many magical moments. I have a friend of mine who's dead now and you know, it's said that any idiot can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in a seed. He was a young guy and he was a drug addict and an alcoholic. And he went out to, he went out to New York and he got a part in a Broadway play. He was an actor and he moved out to California and he was a member of AA. He was not a member of our fellowship, but his story is worth repeating here. It was a Saturday night, a rainy Saturday night in Los Angeles, and they got a call from East, East LA, not the high rent district, East LA. And they go out there, they always go in twos. They always go in twos. And they go out to this flea bag motel in East LA. And there's a guy sitting on a bed drinking whiskey. <laughs> and they go in there and they're talking to this guy for about an hour and they finally realize he's asleep. He's just sitting there sleeping and they leave him. They put the whiskey on the nightstand and they leave five years later, five years later, this friend of mine is doing a talk in, in uh, San Diego, California at an Alcathon, big convention, Alcathon. And a guy comes up to him and he says, uh, you're so-and-so. He says, yes. He slaps a bear hug on, the, on him and said, on my friend and says, you saved my life. My friend says, gosh, I, I, I don't, don't believe I know you. The guy says, do you remember several years ago when you came to that motel in East LA and you were talking to the guy on the bed? He says, yes. He says, I was hiding under the bed and I heard every word you said and I haven't had a drink since. You never know how you're going to get it. You never know where the magic is going to strike. You never know how God is going to bring that magic back into your life. Remember those concentration camp survivors who told me, live until you die? This is the best way I know to do it. I'm being healed in areas of my life today that I didn't even know were broken. This is the most beautiful way of life that I could ever imagine. It is a life that is full of people. And if you want to know how to find God, for me, most of the time, it's through his children. If I can't really connect with God today, I can connect with people. And I can reach out to that person and I can say to that person, hey, how's it going? How you doing? What's going on? And in doing so, I find God. Do I pray every day? Yes. But I have to do more than pray. 
I could pray and pray and pray and pray. And I'm not knocking praying. I'm not knocking meditating, but I better translate it into action. Two because minutes, two minutes. Please. Don't translate it into action. No, you got 248 still. Okay. But if I don't translate it into action, I got problems. Page 100. Here are the 12 step promises. The 12-step promises are on page 100 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It says, both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power. You will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. I'm going to close with the final benediction. But before I do, if I run over, don't shoot me. I want to thank all the organizers. Uh, I, I don't remember names except for Lisa. I remember that name, but I don't remember everybody's name. So I don't want to mention names because I don't want to leave anybody out. But if you were on the committee, thank you for putting this together. I thank you for inviting me. I hope I didn't disappoint. Let's go to page 164 for the final benediction. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others this is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, I've lost a little over 500 pounds since that time. I have 22 years of abstinence. This is the greatest way of life imaginable. If you're on the precipice, give it a chance. Open your mind, open your heart. What you're doing isn't working. If what you were doing was working, you wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't be listening to this recording. You wouldn't be here. Nobody comes in here on a roll. It's time for a new direction and hopefully our paths will cross again and we can trudge the road of happy destiny together. So with that, perfect timing, perfect timing. And with that, we'll transition to questions and answers. Harlan, 